We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Arsenal twice take the lead, twice give it away. Brilliant attacking play and beautiful goals punctuated by some comedy defending. It's an all-new Emery era at Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. That's right, everyone. It's going to take a while to get used to it. This scoring goals but conceding goals is taking the lead but then giving the lead back and then having to claw the win at the end of the match. How will we ever get used to this new era at Arsenal? Oh, wait. It seems a lot like the old era. How we get there, the journey there, different, the outcome the same, and that's what's important. It's a win. It's a first away win. Uh, yeah, first away win of the season, something that we basically didn't do a whole hell of a lot of last season, so that is a nice change. And here to discuss it, Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Paws My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo. Clive's on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Scott will be along momentarily. Tim can't join us. He's boarding a plane, I guess, probably to go to one of our Europa destinations because I think it's a seven-week journey to get there. So we'll find out more about that later. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. A couple things that I want to mention just really quickly. So there is another podcast. I don't recommend you ever listen to another podcast, but there is one. It's called Gooners in the USA. Uh, Gooners in the USA is hosted uh, by two wonderful gentlemen who are really pushing hard to get contributions to the Gooners versus Cancer uh, charity that's going on right now. So they, they do this as the seventh annual uh, Cars Cruising to Cure Cancer, benefiting LLS, uh, Gooners versus Cancer. You can go to GoonersVSCancer.com, GoonersVSCancer.com. Uh, this charity drive is, is sort of wrapping up. So uh, it goes to help the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society find a cure for blood cancers worldwide. Uh, if there's anything that you want to give, Mike and Andy would certainly appreciate it, but I think everyone the world over would appreciate it uh, because we know what a bitch 
of a disease cancer is and, and anything we can do to uh, pull together as gooners to fight it would be great. So if you want to support that, great. Uh, another thing you can always support, obviously, certainly not as important, but uh, definitely close to our heart is our Patreon. Up on our Patreon right now, there's an In the Spotlight episode on Hector Bellerin that I think people have really enjoyed and, and uh, hope to hear your feedback on it. Also, Tim is doing video previews for the matches now, which is really cool. He's going to do that over on the Patreon page. So check it out. I mean, if, if you don't want to support or cannot support the Patreon page, again, no problem whatsoever. We love that you're listening to this podcast. We really appreciate it. Maybe you can just give us a five-star review instead. That's fine. Write nasty things about Tim in the comments. Otherwise, go to patreon.com forward slash Arsenal Vision postmatch. No, Arsenal Vision podcast. That's it. And uh, yeah, sign up and let us know. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up there. Maybe even something featuring Shaka soon. So little teaser there. Anyway, let's get started. Um, so let's start with the lineup, Clive. I think that's the best place to start as it always has been under Emery because it is Always a little bit surprising, and the surprises continued this time in the sense that uh, Shaka and Ganduzi continue to start in midfield, but there is a first start for Lacazette paired alongside Aubameyang, something that I know you've been calling for. Uh, in terms of how he did it overall, he looks like he put Ramsey at the 10, uh, Ozil out wide, and Aubameyang nominally out wide as well. What did you think of the lineup, and then how did you see it sort of playing out structurally as the match began? Well, I think... You know, it's four two three one Arsenal to start with, and you know my views on that is okay. Clive, accept it. He's going through his process. I don't like it. I don't think we are a four two three one team anymore. I think we are more of a four diamond two team or a three at the back team. But you know what? I can't be worried about that anymore. And I suppose Ramsey was always going to play at Cardiff, so that was a that was a definite. Ozil coming in from Mkhitaryan on the on the right side and. Aubameyang on the left, and again, it's again, it's about accepting what we have. I did see. I, I'm less surprised about the team now. Elliot. I don't go in there with any type of uh, strong ideas. I'm more interested when it comes out, and I don't get angry like I did in the Wenger days because basically, in the Wenger days when the team was announced, I decided that he should know better. He knows all the players. He knows everything about them, and he. I gave him less rope if you see what i mean Whereas there's still emery, plenty uh, of time to get angry don't worry we we've got time <laughs> for that with emery i think you know i think i'm i'm different because i feel he's trying to he's trying to do things with our identity and he's trying to do things with how we play for me he's trying to do things with our football priorities and what really counts and i think that's bigger than the than the system than the lineup than the things we used to be obsessed about. And I think it's more important how we play within the within the structure and the lineup rather than who plays, if that makes sense, and where yeah. they stand. And and I'm and I'm a big believer in football. I'll talk about this a bit later. During a game you solve problems. And I, I think the players during this game, they solve problems that have been presented to them. The shape changed. It became more of a four two two two. And I think we start to see a few more relationships and partnerships develop. And you know, the number one partnership is a two up front. Just by moving one guy 10 yards from the left inside, suddenly we had a dual threat. Suddenly we looked like a top 16 and we won the game running away. And it was, it was quite interesting how the game morphed and developed. Yeah, I mean, the problem also is Anytime you concede goals as easily and sloppily as we are capable of conceding them, it undermines the approach you're trying to take, right? 
because you may feel that you are secure, that you're set up the way you need to be, that you should be able to get the goal to get you in front and manage the game. And and we did get the goal to get us in front, thanks to Mustafi from a header. But when you can't manage the game, your system becomes undermined. And when you're suddenly level with you know a quarter of the game to play and you need to chase the game again, you have to start making adjustments. So I, I think it is difficult to analyze from a build-up and attack standpoint, what system is serving us best? Because right now, none of the systems seem to be serving us very well defensively, unfortunately. And some of that is just down to errors. But, Paul, I want to stay focused on the lineup for a second in two specific respects. The first, and we'll get back to the the center forwards, or, you know, one center forward and and wide forward, depending on how you see it, in a moment. But I want to talk about Ramsey and Ozil. You know, there has been a debate, I think, in the Twitter sphere about whether Ramsey and Ozil can both start in the system that Emery wants. And when he's played Ramsey, he seems to want to play him in the 10 as a trigger for the press, and he, he's been reluctant to use him out wide. We've seen Ramsey under Arsene Wenger have some success as a, a wide forward drifting in um, and sort of joining in the midfield. But in this case, it was Mesut Ozil who started on sort of the right flank, and, and Ramsey started in the 10. And for me, neither of them really thrived in that position. Do you see that? continuing to be a challenge for this manager how to use both of those players at the same time and get the best out of both of them simultaneously uh it's certainly a or the big challenge because they're also kind of the two uh the two dominant stars from a who who runs the way we play they both need to be heavily accommodated for um so it's an ongoing battle i, I I did feel myself a little bit out of step with Twitter, not just during the game, but even in terms of the analyses after the game. I really don't think we changed that much between the first and the second half. And I think that's important because there's a, a, a very strong view that we tweaked something to make it work better in the second half than the first half. Um, you don't even think- m- minimally think that Ozil repositioned himself somewhat. I mean, we'll hear later in the Scott section that, his, yeah. his average touch area was certainly different. I mean, do you don't feel that that was by design? I think what, to me, what the difference between the first and the second half was Cardiff got a bit more tired. And in the first half, they really broke up the play so that we were pushed back so that we looked very much like a 4-2-3-1 with Obama Yang left and Ozil right. But actually, in the sections of play where we had the ball even in the first half and we were getting to begin to play it looked quite like how the second half looked uh, obviously that allowed Aubameyang and, and Lacazette to get forward and you, you can go back and look at the highlights in the first half every time we're attacking Aubameyang's quite central Lacazette was often kind of pushed over to the right when we were on the ball in play uh, Ramsey was well over to the left. He wasn't in the center. Almost all of Ramsey's touches are on the left. So what's that tell you about where Ozil tended to pull? He, t- mm-hmm. he tended to be on the right and move to the center. So I do recognize him at a step. I read some of the tactical write-ups that I found very compelling. But when I looked at the game, I think the biggest difference between first and second half was the energy levels of Cardiff. We ran them pretty well ran the place in the first half. They kicked the shit out of us, and at the start of the second half, we came at it with more energy, ran them around. I thought our play in the first 25, 30 minutes of the second half was really good, mm-hmm. much more fluid. Now, you can say why, but uh, I, to me, it was a compounding of we, – we've got very high fitness levels, or should have, 
That was a big part of the Emery plan. I think it started to pay off in the second half and they couldn't stay with us. And so suddenly Ozil and Ramsey had more room. We had more time on the ball with the with the two behind them. And that allowed Aubameyang. And it, you'll, see, you'll see the two fullbacks pushing forward, mainly because we have possession and they weren't able to do that in the first half. So uh, I, I know I'm out of step here. But well, I just not entirely. Wanted, yeah, I, I mean, I we did dominate the our, ball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go but ahead. Not in the first half. In the first half, they gave us, uh, they broke up the play so much. In terms of actual open play, yeah, maybe we were dominating the ball. But they just broke it up so much. Uh, they'd get a set piece. They'd play it downfield. They'd get a few corners. There was so much rotational fouling in the first half that I don't think it allowed a, the game to flow and for us to truly take the shape we were going to have when we had possession. So, uh, But yeah, the, the fundamental question of Ramsey Ozil, I'm not sure we're going to get away with that. Mm-hmm. As a, th- This 4-2-2-2, if everybody's really excited about it, I don't know that that's supportable against better teams because um, I think we only looked super good in that the second half for maybe two thirds of it in between uh, giving them ball, letting them have set pieces and making us look bad down the other end, going the wrong direction. I think we did actually look really good when we had the ball, when we had possession, but that allowed us to make that shape work in an attacking sense. Yeah. I mean, look, there is definitely some kind of problem when you have 70. This goes back to my initial point about how your system can give you the control you want, but your poor defending can undermine that. When you have you know 78% of the ball, but you let them take 14 shots and score two goals. And by the way, I realize shots is not always the best metric because if you shoot from the halfway line, it's technically a shot. But still, I think there is something to the idea that with the control we had on the ball – we should have had more solidity. You know, one thing, Clive, that I definitely... Yeah. I was going to say, should I tell you what what I think's happening there? Well, yes, I would love to. But then afterwards, can I ask you a question that you will answer? Okay, go ahead. (laughs) No, no, no. No, you do your bit, but I'm going to ask you a question afterwards, and I just want your commitment to answering that question after you say your piece. (laughs) Okay. Okay, go for it. You know what I'm like. I've been thinking about this for a few days. Sure. And and it it first hit me when I'm watching Manchester United Spurs. Funny enough, and I look at their players, and they do a shot, they come out the tunnel. I look at their players, and I'm thinking, Can I, they've got some strong players with some real level of assurance. And when I see Arsenal players, some of this is down to how you feel as a fan when you support the club, you know. So, but I think we're playing without a level of of just assurance. You know what I mean? That that moment, that that feeling that we really are on top of what we do. I just feel we lurch from being assured and talented and, and flow-based to something that's really quite brittle. So I ask myself, so why is that? And then I look at the players in our midfield, look at players at the, in the back line, and the players in the back line, they all played pretty well. You can't remember any big mistakes that they made. And then you look at the guys in midfield, they, didn't, they did okay. There was no poor performances in there. And then the two up front, obviously, they ended up winning the game for us. So, so what's going wrong? And for me, it's the big word is distances, right? So our distances are not correct. So I spent two years about Ramsey standing 25 yards in front of Shaka, for example. But if you look at Guendouzi for a while, he actually splits to the right quite a lot. And Shaka split into the left. So what's happening? When we have the ball, 
You know, you, we moaned about Arsenal being an off-the-ball team that's poor. And I started to think about this a little bit more deeply. Our issue is not just when we're off the ball, how we recover and what our recovery speed is like and our running past stats. Our problem is how we attack. We attack in a go-where-you-like scenario. We split different areas of the pitch and our distances are too big. So our offensive distances are not put in place based on what would happen if we lose the ball. So when we lose the ball, we've got Genduzi on the right, we've got Shaka towards the left, we've got two exposed centre-backs, we've got four backs touching the corner flags, and we've got two forwards trying to get close to the connect. So when we lose the ball, we're now reliant on our running speed to close the distances. And we're also quite weak on our recovery running speed. And, and so what does Emery try to do? So Emery's obviously highlighted this and he spotted this. So what he tried to do was compress the space versus Chelsea, for example, and push the line up ridiculously high to try to close the distances. But it didn't work. We got picked off and we conceded three goals and we ended up losing the game, especially in the first half where we were, we could have conceded five. So he dropped the line deeper and we ended up getting control in that game through individual play. But the issue is the distances we have. So what he needs to do is compress the distances from the side. And it's quite interesting that the four, or the magic square, the four, two, 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 that compressed the distances in the middle of the pitch with the addition of Torreira, we look more competitive. We got to the pitch of the ball quicker. We created transitions in the middle of the pitch. And so the problem is not always, everyone says Arsenal are a very poor off the ball team, which we are. Really, it's what we're doing on the ball. We need to be playing shorter, more compact passes with less risk. But when we lose the ball, because we're closer together, much like Man City, because when we're closer together, we can sprint to the pitch of the ball, we can take people out by fouls, and we can stop the counter-attack. That's what we need to change. It's the whole compactness of the group, but particularly when we have the ball. And that's a cultural thing. That's a Wenger thing. We have many players that take up wonderful positions that have made great careers from finding space for themselves. But actually, not with the tactical foresight to think about what happens when the move breaks down, what happens to the rest of the team. And that's why we've slipped away from being a top 40 to being a top 16. But when I always talk about decisions around those key individuals, which you mentioned a couple earlier on, people are not prepared to make those decisions because they're not thinking about the game that way. They think about what they do on the ball when they have a good day and they refuse to question those individuals. When, for me, if we want to reach the elite level again, we need to be absolutely tactically perfect. We need to have the right positioning, the right starting position. We need to have the right athletes with the right football psychology to play both sides of the game. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I, I still think, you know, a, a shorter version is to simply say that our problems continue to boil down to central midfield to some extent. Um, I don't feel that the balance there is right. I don't feel it's been right for a long, long time ever since. I mean, you can go back to ever since Santi Cazorla dropped out of this team when it was Santi Cazorla and Francis Coughlin, which kind of worked. We've tried yeah. Flamini in there and Coughlin and Ramsey and Shaka, who, you know, we're going to get to him because he is a hugely polarizing figure at the moment and one that has to be discussed. But you look at it and, you know, whether it's Ramsey who's nominally playing the 10 and pushing forward and triggering the press but maybe not dropping in or it's Ozil who, you know, can come into midfield but likes to be, you know, popping up in space more so that he can, you know, create those those 
chances with, with killer passes. There isn't a real three-man midfield that we can put out there right now, or that certainly not that we have put out there right now. And you look at a team like Chelsea that's in sort of a similar sort of rebuilding situation as they reshape their squad and, and learn a new style under a new manager, but look at that midfield. Conte, Kovacic, Jorginho. That's a real three-man midfield right there um, with a lot of control. And and I, I still think we are missing that balance. Now, I was going to ask you a question, but you had a good go at it. So I'm going to just slide it on over to Paul um, <laughs> because I have some hope that Paul will actually answer the question I asked. Paul, we have a lot to get to. We got to get to Czech's era. We got to get to Shaka's era. We got to get to Shaka in general. We have to get to Torreira, Obama, Obama Yang, Obama. How I miss you, uh, Obama Yang, uh, and Lacazette. But I want to just stay on the on the right flank for a second. Mm. I want to give you some statistics. I'm going to go mini Scott here. Okay. Um. Hey. So here I am, a mini Scott against West Ham. Okay. Hector Bellerin received 11 passes from Mkhitaryan. And played 16 passes to Mkhitaryan. Okay? In this game, he received nine from Hector. So only two less. He played six to Ozil. Sorry, he, Hector received nine from Ozil. He played six to Ozil. So the guy who was at least theoretically his right flank partner there, not nearly as involved and interactive with Bellerin. Yeah. Now, look at, look at what it results in. In the West Ham game where he played the 16 passes to Mkhitaryan, he played just seven to Mustafi. In this game, he played 15 times to Mustafi. So Bellerin often finding himself isolated and without a partner to play those overlaps to create those those opportunities to um, have a numerical advantage down the right, he wound up playing back to the defense. And that, you know, it doesn't have to be a true winger. It just has to be someone committed to the job and... I just don't feel in this game that Ozil was committed to the job, and we looked so dangerous down Bellerin's flank in the Chelsea game with Mkhitaryan and, and Bellerin and in the West Ham game, but that that route to attack was really shut off in this game. For you, was that one of the most noticeable distinctions by having or differences by having Ozil in that role? Yeah, it was a massive change. Obviously, I've been very much on the Mkhitaryan bandwagon for uh since pre-season hoping he'd kind of have the start he did and he did so it was kind of a shock that he left him out but as clive alluded to um you know emery's trying different things and it's interesting and he needs he needs to try this shit early in the season but this is one of those where you think whoa that that's a big move and it utterly changed how we played because the the fullbacks in large part weren't that much of a factor Uh, to me we saw them much more as we kind of dominated a period of possession in the second half where you would see Bellerin and Monreal well pushed forward. And, and as I look at the, the, the touches and positions for first and second half, Bellerin is much more forward in the second half, getting much more touches in, in our attacking half, but still not, nothing like as involved as he has been when basically his, his corner, his attacking corner was the dominant area, like in the old days with Theo Walcott. That's where it was all coming from. This time, to me, it was all Ramsey-centric. Uh, you know, he's a higher-touch player, a busier player than Ozil. Mm-hmm. Ozil, as we know, likes space. He also, you know, a part of that tactic is to kind of uh, lay low and be forgotten about so that when he's in space, he's really in space. The, the opposition has has kind of left him alone. So it kind of, sometimes he kind of plays into that a little bit. But as Ramsey was 
drove to the left to combine over there where all the activity was, where much of our, atta- our, our attacking came. The nozzle kind of got sucked into the middle. But yeah, his, his go-to was not to find ways to get Bellerin forward. We basically played up the middle with this, this uh, 4-2-2-2 all the way up. And the fullbacks largely fended for themselves or in periods of high possession, they kind of helped, kind of helped the, the momentum go. But it was really those, those six players pinging, moving around, uh, filling into the fullback spot or the attacking fullback spots themselves. I mean, I mean, it was Ramsey up in that corner a lot of the time getting those touches. So it was just a totally different way to how we played the first three games radically different relying on the, those six players down the middle uh keeping it compact and it was very pleasing on the eye for a lot of it but utterly different and i just wonder had the other team had the energy to close us down down the center to keep that pressure on in the second half would the ping it around would lacazette dropping in and getting all these touches with ozil and ramsey and Yang? could they have closed us down better uh, for that 20 or 30 minutes where we were pretty dominant in the second half. Uh, to me, it was lovely. Uh, I thought it was great football. I just wonder, will we always get away with it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm, I'm going to do something here because Clive is now regretting not having had the chance to answer the question I wanted to answer, uh, ask him initially. So I'm going to let him, but I'm going to make one point real quick, though. I think one thing you have to do, and Paul, I think you would certainly agree with this, is as you watch these games, you have to look for signs that something is clicking, that they're starting to understand certain realities of the system. And there was one really interesting yes. moment earlier in, in the game where Bellerin was in the attacking third and we lost the ball and we were really exposed. It might have even been coming off a set piece, but he makes the foul uh, and stops the counterattack. He doesn't even get a yellow for it. It could have been a yellow card, but he just hauls the guy down um, because he's beaten and they're going to have numbers the other way. And that's something we haven't done in the past. And we mentioned on the previous pod that Manchester City stopped more attacks through fouls than any other team in the league. And so that really put a smile on my face. We actually talked about it in the Bellerin podcast on the Patreon side of things because needing to understand that rather than winding up chasing people 80 yards down the pitch, sometimes you just have to take them out of the play. So Clive, come back in on the right wing issue and then we'll, we'll look at some of the, the mistakes that, that unfortunately caused us problems in the match. Yeah, it's a right-winged issue, and it's also Arsenal fighting instincts of two players in Ramsey and Ozil. They have got unique instinct for the game. They feel the game in a unique way. Their skill sets are all about how they occupy spaces that hurt the opposition. And they both have a similar instinct in that way. They do different things when they arrive into those areas, but they have a similar instinct for the game and they have similar weaknesses. When you get them both on the pitch at the same time, what happens? You're defensively weaker, your positional discipline goes, so you're not sure where your partnerships are coming from because they're quite individual in how they seek space. They seek space for themselves. One seeks space for himself to help another. Another seeks space for himself to get an assist or a goal, more likely a goal. And what that does, it destroys partnerships, but also creates partnerships. But the issue is you don't know where they're coming from. And what we saw previously with Mkhitaryan was 
we could see his positional discipline is much greater. He developed a much stronger, longer-lasting partnership with Bellerin, and we saw the results. We saw something similar with Iwobi and Montreal. So it comes back to where are we going with this? We've got two free spirits on the pitch. Positionally, we are weak when we lose the ball. Offensively, we're we're okay, but we're okay the week before against West Ham. So we're going to have to work out actually what style we're going to play. What's going to be the priority? Are we going to allow two floaters to either succeed or fail? And when we fail, it's going to cost us. The fact that I think Cardiff had 22% possession and created 14 chances, that tells you we had no assurance no stability, no positional discipline. We were open to be attacked. And I think we had 16 or 17 chances of 78% possession. So I'm not sure we're getting the reward for the risk that we're taking with these two players. Well, okay. And I'm afraid... Go ahead. Sorry, finish your thought. We, we've got to decide. Yeah. And my, my view is I'm not sure how valuable they are to the future of Arsenal. There you go, I've said it. Well, I know it wouldn't bother me if both of them walked from the cup because we've had a good long time now to have a look at them. One five years, one ten years, and I don't see it improving. I don't see us being anywhere near an elite midfield. And these two players are in our midfield. So we talk about the same things amongst fans, amongst ourselves, but we don't question the individuals. We question the manager, we question everybody else. But now I want to question individuals. And when you ask yourself, when you add other players to this, and it's not vindictive, this is about, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? Because we cannot concede 14 chances to Cardiff. I expect to do anything this season. Yeah, you can't season. let them score two goals and concede, you know, give the lead away twice against a team that couldn't score against 10 men in consecutive games. Exactly. How encouraged did they look? I mean, they were so encouraged and emboldened because they could see the spaces. They could see they could get they could get to us. I actually thought our defenders had great games, particularly our centre halves. I know we played the wrong edge at the start of the game, or we all the back pass stuff, etc. That's just juvenile mistakes. We need to fix that. You know, that needs to be sorted out. But the common area is the centre of our pitch. We offer no assurance, no dominance. No fear factor. We offer positional indiscipline and wonderful creativity. But when we lose the ball, our players could literally be anywhere on the pitch. But I tell you what, often we leave a couple of people alone, either two centre-backs or a shaka, and they're the ones that are being embarrassed by all just green spaces they have to yeah. cover. Yeah, well, all right, and so <clears throat> a couple of things. I think there's a philosophical issue here, which is just your worldview, all right? One worldview is Emery has a plan and an approach for how he wants the team to play, and whichever personnel gets us playing that way is the way he should play. The other philosophy states Emery is not the manager. He is the coach now. He has been handed a squad. The squad has certain talents, and the coach's job is to deploy the biggest talents in the best way possible. I have seen Aaron Ramsey and Mesut Ozil be on the pitch together, winning us an FA Cup against... City in the semifinal, and Chelsea in the final, using a back three, a midfield two of Shaka and Ramsey, and Ozil flitting around wherever he wanted to go. And it worked, and we dominated, and it was successful. So I know it can be done. Now, I'm not saying it can be done over 38 Premier League games. Maybe not. But there is a philosophical issue here that's going to have to be determined or, or uh, you know, going to have to be resolved about whether the goal is to play Emery football 
with whomever can do it best or to play the best football with the best players we have? And and I, I leave that as an open question. And Paul, that leads to another question, which is Petr Cech. You know, you could say it's a process. Trust the process. Be patient. You could also say doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So as we watch Czech just struggle, and I love the guy, I really do, and I think he's done a good job as a goalkeeper, essentially, but as we watch him struggle with his distribution, with the ball at his feet, um, and that it's clearly in his head now, at least it sure seems like it to me, do you have to wonder now, is it finally time for Leno to come in or for us to abandon playing short with the keeper one or the other? Because... First of all, the giveaway to Harry Arter is inexcusable. He had two big errors in the game. And, I mean, it was, again, just uncomfortable watching him playing out with his feet. What do you make of the Czech situation? Uh, yeah, it was ugly. Um, and and I think a different level of ugly to before. I, I was kind of okay taking our lumps, especially, I guess, in the City game, uh, which was, you know, it was his first game. And... Uh, so, so he gets that that mulligan there, and he had a couple of particularly ugly moments. Uh, in this game, it, this was quantitatively dif- different to me. Um, it, it, you know, al- although we can expect some progress and some setbacks, this felt like a big, big uh, uh, series of errors. Um, and and troubling and you know I, I I'm kind of in the the Czech camp that we shouldn't write him off too quickly. I, I have been since before the end of last season. But isn't it just uh, the same the same thing, Paul? And I'm I'm sorry yeah. I'm, to interrupt, but I just isn't it all again down to this idea that you either play to the strengths of the players you're putting on the pitch, or you put players on the pitch who can play the way you want. Czech. I actually, I mean, he's saving an above average percentage of the shots he's facing, and he's having to face a lot of shots. But yeah. he can't play this way, man. It's just, it's insanity. Well, he kind of be- began to fake it a little bit with Chelsea and West Ham, where he looked almost passable. Um, but I think he has an upper limit, and he's going to have bad games. And this was uh, for for a a keeper playing with the ball at his at his feet he really showed his limitations on a bad day he could be terrible and this this you know this uh, we didn't get hurt by in particular by any of those instances as i remember them but i think it undermines the confidence in the team emboldens the opposition uh, they certainly pressed at the beginning of each half uh, maybe more so than than through the game as they maybe got a little tired but they certainly pressed us uh in playing out from the back and were pretty enthused about it and it got them down the other end and got them throw-ins and and corners which we survived but it does change the momentum of a, uh, momentum of a game i think the question you know i listened to the art cast and they did a really nice job on this as uh, andrew, always yeah andrew was very much on the you know, he's basically one more game and uh, and that's it. We we kind of got to yank him for Leno. But I think if I'm the manager, I'm holding out till uh, Leno gets a Europa League game or two under his belt. Uh, even if, I mean, if, if Czech has another catastrophe, that's one thing. But if he has another bad game... Uh, I might, as a manager, be still looking to buy some time to see what I've got on the other side of it. Because dropping a keeper 
you know, they did talk in the Arse cast about, you know, if it's a, if it's a midfielder or if it's an attacker. I mean, I think the striker is the close, closest equivalent because when you drop a key, you know, your key striker, that kind of it can impact the confidence. But it's not that unheard of to rest a striker to say, you know, kind of uh, take a bit of a breather, uh, relax, get your stuff together. And we'll field you in again. You don't do that with keepers. You don't drop them to bring them back. And we've seen other teams like Liverpool try to go between one keeper and the other. So it's crossing the Rubicon. Once you go across that line, you have basically uh, told the keeper he's not going to be good enough. It's not you rest him for a game or two. He only comes back in again when the other guy's even shitter than you remember him being. So it's a big, big decision. So yeah. I don't know we're there yet. Uh, I, I will say one thing. Th- I, yeah. he, he is old enough and experienced enough that I don't think he would suffer the kind of confidence-destroying setback by being dropped. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't a guy who, if you then have to rely on him in a subsequent game, is going to be hurt and, and shattered because he was dropped. I mean, he's, he's long enough fair. in the game to have that resilience. Uh, That's fair. Mm-hmm. But uh, can I just add quickly, Clive, um, Last year, when uh, um, Wenger talked about Czech's confidence dropping uh, in the period when he was trying to get that clean sheet for eight or ten games, and it did seem to really get to him. So uh, I think I just think it's tough. Did someone just fall down their stairs? Is everybody okay? Everybody okay? Yeah, everyone's fine. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thank God. Good. I, I'm. I thought you were dead, Clive. Anyway, yeah. so, uh, he, he was so I upset that, that he didn't get to come in on that point that he wanted to make that he chucked something across the room. So, Paul, I'd wrap it up quickly, buddy. Yeah, I did. So uh, while I think Czech is more robust, still, I mean, he's putting his reputation out there. This is very uncomfortable for him. And I just think this is the one position you got to be loath to to pull the plug on. So I don't know. I might be just that little bit more patient. Before I, and, to, yeah. and to your point in terms of, of playing to people's strengths or style um, rather than imposing a, an approach, it's a compromise, but playing from the back isn't optional, I guess, is my feeling. Okay, so to that point, I want to make a point about that because I think that's really important. Check made horrible errors with his feet but going short he was 16 of 19 now one of the three he misplaced went right to harry arter and should have been a goal you you know football is too low scoring a sport to gift the other team a goal out of uh, dogmatic adherence to a philosophy let me say that another way so it's a little clearer you can't concede goals just because you want to play a certain way that's not okay in a sport that often is one by one one score but here's the thing to bear in mind going long Check was 8 of 19. 8 of 19. Okay? Nearly 60% of the time he went long, the ball was coming right back at us. 16 of 19 going short. Now, that needs to be 19 of 19 because of where those passes are. I get it. But I'm making the point that going long isn't any better. 60% of the time, it's coming right back at us. It's not really working. So that's something to bear in mind. He did, to his credit, have one good throw out, and uh, that'll come up later. But before we take a break, I want to let Clive finish on that thought. We're still going to talk Shaka. We're still going to talk Obama uh, Yang and Lacazette and the, the great goals they scored and the importance of their contribution, uh, and Lucas Torreira, of course. But uh, quickly, Clive, on, on check. Yeah, well, going long, what it does, it, it feels better. Right, and people like the ball away from their goal. They don't really think about the numbers associated to it. There's, I heard Roberto Martinez say one thing once about England versus Spain. 
He said, in England, the second sport is rugby. And it's all based on territory. In England, the second, sorry, in Spain, the second sport is basketball, and it's all based on possession and short passing and making angles and making movements. And in England, when you watch the game, people are sort of territorial on the pitch, and they like the ball in areas where they feel less stress. So that we have an actual inclination to have the ball away from our goal. My biggest concern with Czech is when Emery's asked about him. He often quotes his mindset and his value and his personality to the dressing room. And he sees him as a major kingpin to our team because I think he's a major leader in our dressing room. And that's a worry in itself. He obviously is a, could be the best Premier League keeper apart from Michael and Seaman that you've ever had. But actually... The problem we have is we lack that leadership at the moment, so he's keeping him in. If he drops him, we lose that player from our squad because there's no coming back for a 36-year-old. So he almost has to play him. He has to give him a chance. But to your point, Elliot, it's worrying when we see Man City obsessed by playing out from the back. Against against West Ham, it wasn't so bad. But we are back to the City game again. and uh, And I think... Cardiff away, why did we just do that and bring them on to us? I just thought it was unnecessary. So we've got a journey to go through here, mate, and it's painful. And I do think we're going to, the patience will wear thin eventually from the fan group. And I think we need to think about if we are going to play a certain way. And by the way, I don't believe that certain way is in by any way defined as yet. But if we are going to play a certain way, we do need to start thinking about the players who can actually play it. Yeah, I mean, and and that is the, right now for me, the crux of everything happening at Arsenal is the tension between footballing philosophy and the the skill set and qualities of the specific players we have. And it does feel to me that there is a tension between the footballing philosophy of the head coach and the qualities of the players in his squad. And it's up to the head coach to resolve it because it is not up to the players. I mean, it may be, but it's not realistic, to become different players. So you you can run harder, you can try harder, you can get more physically fit, but if you are not a good passer of the ball, uh, if you are not a good finisher, if you are not defensively aware by nature, those are not things that are just going to change. So Emery's footballing philosophy is important, and we should trust it, but... It does have to connect and align with the skill set of the players he has. We're going to take a break. We're going to bring in Scott. We're going to get the stats that, as always, prove everything we've said is wrong. And then we'll come back and talk about all the really important stuff in this match that we've gone 40 minutes without discussing. Shaka, Torreira, Aubameyang, Lacazette, the goals, the win. We'll do it all after this. Okay, but first we're going to tell you about our friends at Beer52. Obviously, beer52.com forward slash vision. Go there. Get free beer. Why wouldn't you get free beer? Now, this is for the UK only, so all my US friends, like myself, we will have to cry into whatever beers we do have. But as a listener to our show, you can try your first case for free. You just pay £2.95 postage. It's eight incredible craft beers, Ferment Magazine, and a snack delivered with free next-day shipping. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Just pay the £2.95 postage. Now, Beer 52 is... Obviously, our favorite, but they're not just our favorite. They're the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. Five-star rating on Trustpilot. I want to tell you what they have going on. If you sign up now, you are going to get to discover fantastic beers from the winners of the Raise the Bar competition. Beer 52 search for the UK's best new small brewers in partnership with London Craft Beer Festival. Enjoy the likes of Unity's 7% Export Stout, Boxcars Belgian IPA, and West by 3's Mothership Wit Passion Fruit. 
all at beer52.com forward slash vision. That's beer, the number 52.com forward slash vision. Go get your free beer now. Tweet at us. Tell us how good it was. And I will tweet you back that I am sad and jealous and hope that Beer 52 is ready to launch uh, in the new country, hopefully sometime soon. All right, it's time to bring in Scott and get the statistics that support the conclusions that we are drawing. And if those statistics uh, do not support the conclusions we are drawing, then obviously we will dismiss the uh, statistics and continue to draw the conclusions. So Scott is here. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Howdy. Howdy. You know, I have to say, I like everything about what you do on this podcast, but you have the most underwhelmed, welcoming statement like the high the how it always feels like like you just sat in the dentist chair like is is it that bad i just i don't know i i it's hard to get the energy up apparently i'm you know like arsenal i start slow you start slow that's fine well you finish strong which uh thankfully like arsenal this past weekend was the case so let's dive into arsenal three cardiff city two um how about we just start with you giving us a data dump here um the favorite kind of dump for your section, uh, a data dump on the sort of XG overall statistics of, of the team and the players. And then we'll drill into some of the more polarizing and I would say interesting aspects of the game. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so overall, um, Arsenal um, had this one at uh, XG of 1.9 to 1.68. Um, I, this was actually um, pretty interesting to me from a, an XG perspective um, because as I was looking at some of the other um, XG models, they had Cardiff with a, a much lower um, XG toll, um, and I was kind of doing some some research on that, and I, I think the big difference is the the first chance for Cardiff that comes off of the the check error. I have that one at just under um, half a goal. Um, you know, a, a shot after an error to me um, it gets a, a really high uh, rating. So I've saw some where it had it at under 0.9 or 0.09. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. Um, so you'll, if if people see the different XGs out there. I uh, just wanted to give a little bit of an explanation of why mine, um, in general, it was for, higher for Cardiff. on, on yeah. Cardiff. And I want to yeah. jump in. I actually prefer yours there because I think claiming that that is a 9% scoring chance, to me, seems to undervalue the real threat that the, we were in in that moment. I mean, the ball is rolled out to a Cardiff player uh, basically in our own box. I think you know whatever the likelihood of scoring from that position is, and some models obviously think it's 9%, I think weighting it only that much really undervalues the threat that we were under in that in that situation so i actually prefer your model there now that doesn't necessarily mean i'm right but but i I think you've got it spot on so i mean obviously a little worrying that their xg was that high given what they've done for the season some of it was self-inflicted admittedly but in terms of individuals um what performances stood out for you statistically um, so I was actually really impressed with uh, the Lacazette Aubameyang partnership. Um, I thought they they really um, com- they were able to combine well. Um, they, you know, they were combi- they were able to get seven shots um, total, um, five for Lacazette, two for Aubameyang, a uh, total of four shots on target. You know, they each scored a goal, um, a total of 15 touches in the box for the both of them. Um, the other thing that was actually kind of even um, positive is, you know, there was a, a total of six defensive actions um, between the two of them. So both of them, um, I thought, really played well. Um, I thought Lacazette, as the, the focal point for the attack, um, was encouraging. He really was able to, to combine well, put together some some dangerous movement, um, and, you know, kind of actually be the, the one-touch passing that... Um, you know, Giroud was able to to offer for so much, which I don't think um, Aubameyang quite has um, that skill in his toolbox as much as Lacazette does. So that was actually uh, really good. Um, I do want to point out that I was a little bit concerned um, with Aubameyang not quite having um, 
as big of an influence as I would like to see. Um, I, I think that he's one of the, the best players in the world as a striker, and putting him on the wing kind of minimizes his um, great skills. Um, so, you know, they did have the 15 touches combined, but only three of those were for Aubameyang. Um, so I'd like to see him um, be able to, to get more touches in the box, even if he's going to be playing on the wing, um, you know, being as more of a, a second striker and not necessarily having to, to stay wide quite as much. This is where um, so I, that I, was definitely No, I, I, would, I would just say this is where I think statistics can sometimes let you down uh, because I noticed quite a few opportunities where Aubameyang was crashing into the box, was moving beautifully off the ball into the box, and the ball just missed him, or uh, there, there was a situation, it might have been, was it a Lacazette shot that rebounded off the post? Um, yeah, and I think he was and, just... And Aubameyang was just shy of getting to that. There was another ball that came into the box that just bypassed Aubameyang. So, like, I, and that's anecdotal. I certainly can't. Exactly. No, I, I, yeah, I totally But he was there. That, you know, he, yeah. He, he was, yeah, it's not that he was always, you know, out by the touchline, um, but, you know, it's when you're, when you're the center forward, you know, you really get to stay in the box, and, you know, you don't have any of those defensive duties on the wing. Not that, you know, he you know, needed to do a, a ton, but it's still, you know, it's a, just a concern. I'm not well, saying it's, it's, it's a fair it's question a, a to ask also what, you know, what is the cost of him having to make recovery runs and defend deep in terms of him being able to be at the end of moves at the other end of the pitch? So, you know, I, I certainly think we saw this with Alexis, you know, Alexis went through a really nice patch at Arsenal when he was playing center forward and he then got shifted out to that wide position. And while he himself even suggested that he preferred that wide position, he was often looking to facilitate rather than get on the end of things. And I think when you are shunted out wide, there is always the possibility that you will be more of the creator of chances than the person getting onto the end of chances. And I think we would both agree that whatever Aubameyang's qualities, his best qualities, the ones that make him elite are being on the ends of moves. Um, so we'll just have to keep an eye on that. But certainly on the day, to your point, the statistics prove, as do the two goals, that playing them both together uh, reap benefits. Yeah, so I mean, I, I just looked it up here. So um, Aubameyang had a, an average touch 50 yards from goal. Uh, Lacazette was 38 yards. How does that um, compare were, with what he what, what Aubameyang did previously, though? Do you have a... I, I don't have the, the full season pulled up right now. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's something that'll be interesting. Maybe I'll tweet that out later just to, to get a little bit more. Um, yeah, and it looks like he was um, so about 25 yards from the touchline. So at the... Um, you know, right there in that half space, it looked like um, while Lacazette was basically right at the center line, he was uh, yeah, about five yards off of center, a little bit towards the right. So the notion that they were playing at times like two up front is maybe a little bit of an illusion. I mean, there were certainly times when they were, but it was more of a traditional uh, number nine for Lacazette and a little bit more wide for Aubameyang. And yeah, and this is where they made their touches. So it could be, you know, he maybe he was still playing um, up there, you know, on the back shoulder of the, the defender. But, you know, he made more of his touches a little bit further out. Right. Okay. So that's the the partnership between Aubameyang and Lacazette. Another player who obviously is really, really important uh, to how we create chances is Mesut Ozil. And I felt that his wide right positioning for the first half was not getting much out of him. He did seem to drop deeper and more central in the second half. Do you see a clear split in his contribution, his output between the two halves? And, and how was the game for him overall? Um, yeah, so you could definitely see that there was a, a shift in the way that he played. So in the first half, he was a lot further um, right. Um, you know, he, he looks like I have him here as a, an average touch of about uh, 41. So that's about, um, you know, about that, that right half space. Um, and then in the second half, he's 44. So he's about five yards um, more central there. 
Um, so that's a big difference. Um, he's actually a little bit further, um, closer to goal as well. Um, so that's a, a positive thing for me. Um, you know, he went from about 50 yards to goal for his touches to, to 46 yards to goal. So, you know, getting closer, getting more central, being able to get a lot more involved in the match, um, which was very positive for me. Um, and overall, um, his passing, um, you know, was able to produce three killer passes on the day. I had two of them um, in the second half compared to just one in the second half. So a killer pass is uh, one that adds value of greater than 0 0.05. Um, you know, there's usually a handful of those um, in a match. Um, so good to see him um, be able to, to pull the strings a little bit more. Um, you know, was able to get three um, passes into the box um, in the second half. So really just to me, it seems like he, he was really impressive. Um, so he had a, an overall passing value added of 0.48 um, on the day um, and 0.39 of that came in the second half. Um, so really, really better. Yeah, play yeah, for him. absolutely. So so the repositioning of him better. I mean, it, it's a question to me what Aaron Ramsey does then. And I mean, was he sort of the player who maybe didn't find a way to influence this game as a result? I mean, what does it look like? for him and Ozil in terms of how they make this work when it's clear that Ozil needed to be more central, uh, closer to goal to make an impact. But that's, at least in theory, the position that Ramsey should have been occupying. Yeah, to, to me, I think it's it's almost that we need to come to the conclusion that we need to play a midfield three and let Ramsey drop a little bit further. Um, I just don't know if it, it works um, with him um, in that 10 role. He just doesn't seem to, to find the spaces um, as well as Ozil does. He did um, lead Arsenal with four key passes, so he did actually do well in providing um, creative outlet, but I still think that you're not maximizing his skills in that position. Okay. A player who uh, certainly divides opinion, and you know, I, I think it's, it's becoming virtually impossible to discuss him uh, on the old Twitters without starting a civil war is Granit Xhaka. So... I mean, he makes the error that ultimately results in their equalizer right before halftime. And it's a it's a mistake. It's a bad mistake, and it's the kind that he makes a lot. So the first thing I want to do before we get into what Shaka does well is, do the statistics reflect the severity of the mistakes he makes? Yeah, so that it is definitely reflected in there. So um, he does so much good stuff. So he led Arsenal um, with the offensive value or the passing value added. Um, from just the positive plays that he did, he had a .73, which is a really, really high number. Um, but then he also had uh, quite a few on the, the negative sides with a, a negative .25 for his incomplete passes. He didn't have a lot of incomplete passes, but the ones that he did have on the day were, were quite dangerous. Not quite on the, the Petr Cech level dangerous, but... Um, you know, it did end up leading to a goal, and it was um, a kind of a, a dumb move, just just to put it you know, simply. Yeah. Well, so then, as far as for the people who say he doesn't do anything good, what what are the things that he does specifically that maybe a Gunduzi doesn't do? Because I think there are a lot of people saying it should be Torreira starting, and I am certainly one of them. But they think it should be Torreira and Gunduzi, or you know, in my opinion, maybe Torreira and Ramsey, and then you can pull. Ozil back into the number 10 position, but if it is going to be one of Genduzi or uh, Shaka, for people who don't see the things Shaka does better, are there things that Shaka does better? Did he do them in this game? Yeah, so the big thing um, that Shaka does um, is that he connects the defense and he connects it to the, uh, the attack. 
Um, he is probably one of the, the best in the game at completing passes into the final third. So those are ones that, you know, either start in midfield or, or start in the defensive third and then enter into the final third. Um, so on this match, he um, completed 13 of his 14 passes into the final third. Um, and then he also had an additional um, four entries carrying the ball at his, with, at his feet. Um, so that is something that he is world class at. There's very few people that are able to do that as well as he can. Um, he's also a really good long passer. Um, he completed six of seven, although the one that he did miss uh, led to the goal. Um, so that's, again, you know, the good along with the bad from him. Um, and then he just also is able to, to set the tone of the offense, which I, is really something that I don't think that Guendouzi has quite got the, the skills at where he has to be able to set the tempo, set the, you know, be that metronome in midfield like uh, Arteta used to be. Um, so he really does bring that. Sorry, this is when we need to speed up. This is when we need to, to slow down and just hold on to the ball. So he does a lot of those kind of pre-attacking um, moves. So you I know, think Arsene Wenger referred to it as uh, intermediate value passes. Exactly. So if you look at that's where, you know, the XG chain um, or, you know, the, my offensive value added stat really tries to, to identify these kinds of players that, you know, they're not necessarily doing the, the final ball. They're not doing the assist um, or the shot, but they are providing so much of the platform that the offense is built on. Um, I think this also frees uh, Ozil from having to, to drop his deep and create because that's something um, that when um, he has to do that, he doesn't, he's not able to unlock his creative skills nearly as much. So that is where Xhaka really shines, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, one thing that I did notice, uh, there, there was a chart doing the rounds on Twitter today uh, at Tactics Platform posted the Premier League's best quick passers so far this season. Now, I have to admit, I don't know how this is being measured. They measure past success on completion percentage. That's easy enough. But then it's measured against, on the x-axis, um, passers' free time on the ball. And I am not super sure how you're meant to interpret that uh, or you know how accurate it is. But what I will say is two of the slower passers on this chart, although their accuracy is decent, but two of the slower passers on this chart Arganduzi and Shaka. Um, and that certainly seemed to be something that Torreira corrected. So Torreira comes in, Ganduzi goes out. I think a lot of people are looking to see can he be a distributor or is he more of a safe passer and more of a defensive influence? To me, he looked like someone who felt comfortable making the more hurtful passes, the, the more um, valuable, uh, higher value passes. But the thing I loved is how quickly he moved the ball. So when he comes into the game, what kind of influence did he have, and do we see a lift in the performance of, of maybe Shaka, for example? Yeah, so I was actually really impressed by by his start as well, or you know, sub appearance. So you know, the, actually, the, his overall game has been quite impressive for me. Um, you know, to me, he made one mistake. Um, against Chelsea, where he was just dwelling on the ball too long. But really, you know, that's really the only one that really comes to mind with things that um, he's done wrong. Um, in this match, he was pretty much perfect. You know, didn't lose possession um, one time. So that's no missed passes, no bad touches, no dispossessed, didn't get any offsides called. Um, you know, he actually was a, a fairly high volume passer with 26 passes. Um, he was also um, all over the pitch with three tackles and an interception. Yeah, so he's actually three tackles uh, were tied for most in the game, even though he came on um, as a sub uh, late in that second half, which is pretty impressive um, to be able to to do that um, in a match. Um, yep. So. And yeah, he was—he wasn't just doing super safe passes. Um, he had two um, passes into the final third. Um, let's see, 
uh, two of two on the the long passes. So yeah, not a not a bad day um, from him overall. Um, still over half of his passes going forward. Um, you know, four passes in the final third um, total. So those were ones that are stay within the final third. So yeah, good passing from him. Um, and I, I think he's ready to start. You know, it, it sucks that it might be for Gwen Doozy because I thought that he's been, uh, he hasn't done anything necessarily wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, the fixtures are going to start coming um, fast and furious here. So, you know, it, he's going to get game time. But I think that with the Premier League being the, the main focus right now, um, I think Torreira should be in line for a start, um, hopefully coming back after the international break. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's one to keep an eye on because I think, you know, it's funny. People people just can't stand Granite Xhaka right now, and it's because of the errors he makes. And I completely agree. I mean, anybody who's listened to me regularly knows I have not been one to defend Shaka. What I think has happened, though, is that public opinion has swung so far against him that people have lost the ability to see how crucial he is in the way we build play. And so if you want to take Shaka out of there, you're going to have to come up with somebody who can do that job. And if it is Torreira, that's great. But then the question becomes who you partner him with. And... You know, right now I see Shaka and Ganduzi as being very similar, actually, in some ways. But with Shaka being the slightly more assured and uh, more experienced player, certainly, but more assured passer. Now you could say maybe Ganduzi is a little more mobile, but I think both of them have their defensive liabilities. So it'll be interesting to see how Emery deals with that. So far, he hasn't wanted to uh, start Torreira. He's wanted to keep Shaka and and Ganduzi on the pitch together. To start the matches, but I just don't know that that'll continue. So, uh, any other final takeaways from the match for you, Scott? Um, yeah, I, I'm really interested in seeing uh, Burns Leno. Um, so we we might be seeing him soon as we come up into the the cup competitions because with just the the way, not that Czech has played badly with stopping shots. Um, partly is that Arsenal have been allowing too many shots for my taste, but fourth, it, fourth it really, most in the league, I believe. Yeah, fourth most on target, most of the, the top six teams. Yeah, so that's definitely not a, a good thing. Um, luckily, Czech is actually saved um, higher than a league average rate, so makes the, the defense look you know, slightly better than what it should probably look. Um, but it does make you wonder, with Czech not looking impressive, is Leno that bad in training that he can't get a start over him? Or is it really just the seniority? You know, Czech is one of the captains. So I, I'm interested to see uh, Leno actually get some game time in some real matches. So yeah. that'll be the thing that I'm looking forward I'll to. I'll say this. Negatives always seem to stand out more when, when a player makes a big mistake. Because obviously the, the ball that he delivers to, is it Harry Arter, who he gives it to? And then the shot yeah, that is missed. Was, yeah, mean, that was one of his two errors that he yeah, had on the day. Yeah, terrible, terrible. But... He had an incredible long throw out to Ozil and Stride, I believe it was, to start a counterattack that could have led to a goal. You remember that? Throws it right up the middle of the pitch. I don't recall that one, so exactly. Yeah. You, you remember the bad things, and the, the, the good ones kind of lose your mind. Well, and to be fair, part of the reason for that is we tend to believe players like center backs and, and goalkeepers are meant first and foremost to be safe. Um, that if they're not safe, anything else they're doing is less important. I mean, you know, if, if you have David Luiz and he's playing line-breaking passes every other minute, but he's also making comedic... Uh, cock-ups at the back that lead to goals, no one's going to be thinking of his line-breaking passes. So I totally understand. All right, we should probably leave it there. We're rumbling on for almost 20 minutes now. But I think it's really interesting, giving us some food for thought, certainly something to think about with respect to Shaka. But ultimately, Emery's going to have to make the the hard decisions, and we can just come on this podcast and criticize him for it. So Exactly. Think- yeah, Shaka is like the perfect Arsenal player, has so many good qualities, but is also hugely flawed, just like the way our team is built.
Yeah, and then it gives everybody the perfect opportunity to have uh, diametric opinions on him and yell and scream and have a, a, an online civil war. It really is the perfect Arsenal situation. So Scott's on Twitter, O underscore that underscore crab. As always, thanks, Scott. Thank you. Oh, that's so much better. Can you just just do that, man? That makes me feel good. It makes me feel like you are excited to speak to me. So uh, if you can continue with that going it, forward. It makes my day. This this new thing that I look forward to. I, I'm going to just take that at face value. Um, all right. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Paul's going to jump on, join Clive, and uh, then we will get to the really absurd opinion. So stay with us. Okay, we're back. Thanks to Scott for his wonderful statistics. You may have heard me mention that Paul was going to join us for this segment. Uh, Originally, Paul was not going to be in the first segment, but sadly, he became available and was in the first segment. I'm sorry. I can only do so much as your humble host. He's still here. Clive's still here. I'm still here. And now let's get into it. Let's tussle. Let's fight. Let's argue. Let's do the things that get people listening to podcasts and ultimately abusing us on social media. Let's talk. Granite Shaka. I am going to say something typically bombastic typically explosive, argumentative, antagonistic, and I'm going to let Paul answer it. Paul, I know you get mad at me when I do this sort of stuff, but it makes for an well, interesting I, I lesson. I have no idea what you're going to say, but I'm going to strongly disagree with it. I don't Elliot. doubt it, my man. I'm going to say something about Granite Shaka right now, and I have to get this on record. I thought he was okay. I thought he was okay in this game. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, have, I have never really loved the player. I thought he was okay. He makes a terrible, terrible terrible decision to play a pass he doesn't need to play late in the first half that leads to a goal that equalizes a goal by the way that we still had plenty of chances to stop Nacho Monreal has to have a good look at himself and he may be done he's getting close I mean I I love his goals but his defending is poor he was guilty for both goals but other than that big mistake and it was a big mistake he was so central to our buildup in this game, as Scott referenced uh, just a few moments ago. Paul, am I wrong that Granite Shaka was was okay in this game? Is I mean, do I need to just get more angry at him? What, what do I need to do? Tell me how to feel. I feel confused. And then there were two. Yes, I'm the other person on the planet uh, who actually thought Granite Shaka had actually pretty good game. He, I think he had two big fuck-ups. That was obviously one of them. Um, and it relates to that Pep Guardiola conversation uh, that we had where he likes short passes. Now, he's kind of talking over uh, over in kind of the, the wing corridor areas where they're pinging around. He likes those passes short rather than long because, as he says, if you lose the ball there, it's definitely a goal against you, which I thought was exaggeration when Pep was saying it. <laughs> but he apparently is quite literal. Now, there are many players who have pinged the balls Chaka was trying to ping and not cost their team a goal. I just think he fucked it up. I think his his body shape wasn't quite right and he fucked it up. Later on in the second half, he gets mugged with his back, uh, you know, facing our goal on the ball. He gets pressured and spills it as only Chaka can with the slow feet. uh, Slow feet there, Chaka can. Um, And to me, those were his his two big fuck-ups. I think everything else was somewhere between okay and pretty good. I think him and Ganduzi in the second half were actually very, very good. Um, there was a lot I liked about what they were both doing. The, if you, again, I'll go back to this. That 30 minutes or so after the, the start of the second half, 
it is really nice to watch us moving that ball around, moving them around. The the, the fluidity of them, the two in front of them with Am- Ramsey and Ozil, players finding each other, Lacazette, Aubameyang. So much of that has to do with Chaka. Now, I, I still think we had maybe extra half a yard or yard space than we had in the first half. There was a lot I liked about what Chaka did in the first half. So uh, if he's pointing up the other way and he's not overly pressed, to me, he's a very good player. And I'm excited to see what a partnership with him and Torreira may bring because I think Torreira can can take some of that pressure and we'll get on to him. But we saw what he could do to handle some pressure in that second second half. And I'd like to see if that can buy uh, Chaka an extra half a yard in most games when we're being pressed. The fact that Torreira can mop it up a little bit. And no, I'm not in any way done on Chaka. I don't necessarily, I don't want him to be our deepest player when we're getting pressed. I don't want him to necessarily be the first out ball. There was talk about uh, Genduzzi uh, in this game being the guy who was dropping to take the ball under pressure from the centre-backs. I don't actually think that's true. I think it was pretty even between the two of them. Maybe Chaka slightly more, but certainly uh, up to his ratio of receiving the ball in midfield off off the centre-backs. Um, I definitely still think there's a role for him, and I don't. I don't like to see him him getting pressed. And any, you know, we got our challenges playing out with Czech, um, putting pressure therefore on our midfield. So that is the worry in this game. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, I would say this ultimately about Shaka. I think buying him was a mistake. I don't think he's what we needed. I don't think he fit our personnel. And I continue to think that he is an uncomfortable fit for us because of his liabilities, namely his lack of defensive awareness, his slow-footedness, his penchant for a bad giveaway. But he does do things well. The intermediate value passes that he delivers are excellent. He's a good high-volume passer from deep midfield into the final third. The statistics just clearly demonstrate that. I have seen him beat Chelsea and City, as I previously mentioned, with Aaron Ramsey next to him in a midfield two. But he had that extra help. He had that extra center back in the back three. Right now, the balance isn't there. Now, when Torreira came in, the one thing you see that Torreira does that Shaka doesn't do, that ball leaves him quickly. It comes to him and leaves him quickly. And with Shaka, it's just at his feet for what seems like an eternity. Uh, and, and I think that is a problem because it also allows space to become congested and opportunities to be closed down. So, Clive... Maybe you could talk to me a little bit about your feelings on Shaka in this game, the mistakes he made, the qualities he displayed, and the difference when Torreira came on and maybe contrasting the two. For you, is Shaka-Torreira the, the, the pairing that you want to see going forward? Would you drop Shaka and, and go with Ganduzi? I'd love to see a Torreira-Ramsey central midfield. What, what did you make of that, that dynamic? Uh, I think uh, Torreira-Shaka is the, is the best we can do at this moment in time. Um, I like how they stay behind the ball. I like how they move it. Shaka can be a bit slow-footed, but when he's really fit and sharp and on top of his game, he's quicker. Um, but my worry with him is if you, you, you sign a player and you add a player and you like a player because they bring certain ingredients to the team. And so we had a 78% possession game, so Shaka's numbers are going to look good. Right, so let's not overstate those numbers. They're going to look good. We were 
playing, you know, we're playing the dog and duck with a couple of window cleaners in there. This, this is Cardiff City, right? City, right? This isn't Man City. So I think let's get in perspective. Although I do think he offers a lot, and when he's up to speed, he's great. But he's meant to give us that control and assurance, and I'm not feeling it. And when I ask myself why I'm not feeling it, I think it's a collective thing of which Shaka suffers significantly. And it's quite interesting, in the last couple of games, he's ended the games better because of his partner. And his partner has a unique skill to sprint to the ball very quickly, put out fires before they start to roar, take the ball of people while they're not expecting it, and move it very quickly. And he's the perfect antidote to Shaka, who's more of a Spanish-style footballer, get the ball, put, set, you know, use the positional play of our fullbacks, and he's got a lovely range of pass. So the combination's got some potential. Potential. I don't think he'll be so exposed speed-wise. And Torreira now is showing exactly what we need and what we miss from, if Tim was on, he'd love this, from the Ziki days, that ability to speed up the game, get it, punch it, sprint after it. And if you look at the Aubameyang goal, Ozil gets it, punches it through to Lacazette, 1-2, Aubameyang scores. Ozil follows the pass, he attracts Cardiff players, and Aubameyang has time to score. On the Lacazette goal, Ramsey takes the ball, has about three or four touches, has a, a little pirouette, and Torreira's there waiting. He gives it to him, he's like, one touch, bang, into Lacazette's feet, sprints behind the ball, freezes players, Lacazette, one touch out of his feet, goal. And that's what we need, much more directness, speed of thought, purposefulness, and, and Torreira seems to have that. His potential is huge. Alongside Shaka, we may see more of Shaka's control and range be showing a good priority rather than being left in open spaces, having to foul people and get booked because he's left alone. So I think for all the flourish of Guendouzi, I think he's an occasional player at 19. Shaka and Torreira are the ones we should be banking on. Yeah, I'd, I'd be okay seeing uh, Torreira and Ramsey. I, you know, I think in my mind, which is where I do most of my best thinking, that that could work. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see it. Why do you say it. that? Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Just popped into my head casually. Not really sure. <laughs> um, maybe just because I want to fit Ramsey into the squad. I don't know. Maybe because I think that Torreira has the defensive awareness and responsibility, but Ramsey can cover the whole pitch. We know he has the engine to do that, so he can link up with the attack and make those late runs into the box for additional um, attacking influence, but he can cover the pitch enough to get back and not leave Torreira totally isolated. Um, I saw him do that in a midfield two with Shaka. There was an extra defender, but because Torreira is more defensive, maybe he could do it in a back four because Torreira adds a little extra defensive solidity. I'm not sure. We'll have to see. I want to I want to get to something that I think is really important, though. And, Paul, again, I'm going to give you something here. I'm going to give you my overarching football philosophy. Um, so this is pretty heavy stuff. Having good strikers is good. Agree or disagree? Well, uh, I'm going to agree on this one. Okay, so I'm going to stop you real quick. I mean, all kidding aside, I think this is the same tension we discussed with with Czech, right? Adherence to a football philosophy versus the skills that are in your squad. Lacazette and Aubameyang in this game 
did every bit what you'd want 60 million, 50 million pound strikers to do. Aubameyang's finish is silk. It is smooth. It is beautiful. Lacazette's power, confidence, conviction, the movement from both of them, exceptional. When you put strikers like that on the pitch, you have a chance to win games instantly and automatically, regardless of how you play. So philosophy aside, this has to continue to happen, doesn't it? No. (laughs) All right, hang on, hang on. I'm writing this down. No. Okay, got it. Thank you. No, I mean, uh, we're... To get those two on the on the field together uh, requires compromises in other parts of the pitch, which may or w- may not be worth it. Uh, I think. What do you perceive just, as those compromises? Out of, out of curiosity. So, um, like, what, you know, what in this it, game do you feel we lacked as a result, specific result of them playing together? Oh uh, well, we lacked Mkhitaryan. Right, but you could you could have played Mkhitaryan. You could, but now you're pushing back into who's going to be your number 10 in a 4-2-3-1. Uh, then you drop Ramsey. No, you move him back with Torreira, and there it is. See, everybody you like gets to play. Uh, <laughs> I got issues with <laughs> Ramsey and Torreira. All right, mo- moving on. The- Sorry, I, I'm, I'm leading the witness. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, but the other compromise you've got is you now have Aubameyang in a game in which we have less possession covering Monreal, who apparently is not your... Uh, your pick for left full back of the Premier League. I love Nacho, but I mean, you have to say he was culpable on both their goals. I mean, I'm not saying entirely culpable, but was culpable. And one has to remember that Warnock specifically said in the uh, post-game conference uh, to show how how clever and brilliant and genius he was that they targeted targeted our two full backs because they're so weak. So maybe that's shorthand for their... They don't rate them that highly, and they're not being very well protected. They're super at exposed, Arsenal. yeah. No, we know that. Look, look. I, I think exposed not or not said. exposed, not Nacho not made two said. errors. Yeah, go ahead. No, you're right. He said they were weak. Yeah, he said they were. He said they were poor, mm-hmm. and that's what they went after. Now, uh, obviously, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, let's, let's not have say, it. <laughs> yeah, let, let's have the conversation that he won't be the last football manager to target our full backs. And we've seen us staying very narrow and leaving the fullbacks to fend for themselves. That's a big compromise when you decide you want uh, Aubameyang covering Monreal. So uh, I think there's a bit of horses for courses. I think with most teams, if you want a knife fight, that's the way to go. Uh, With both strikers, it's a bit of a trade-off. I'd like to see it more. This was delicious. Um, Lacazette, it just strikes me. He was kind of a very... This might be very harsh on him. He was a kind of a very sulky player last year, even when things seemed to be going well. Uh, he just didn't seem like the happiest guy on the planet, and that's when he was basically a starter, or if he was coming back in, he was about to be a starter. Or And this year, he's our number two striker, or so he could have been confused into thinking at the start of the season, and based on the manager's um, selection. Uh, statements, mm-hmm. yeah, S- selection and statements about he was like more of a one striker guy as a manager, and Obama Yang happened to be that strike. And yet, his his whole demeanor is so much more positive, so much more charged up. And then he gets on the pitch, and every time he makes a contribution, and most of the time it's a good one, and he like he's just got so much more physical into how he plays his game. Uh, he looks like a real asset for pre- pressing, whether it's pushing up the field or chasing back uh, to to grab the ball from one of their midfielders. 
So don't get me wrong. There's loads I love about seeing those two players together. And it's a feast for the eyes. But I don't think it's a slam dunk. And we'll have bigger tests. So, And then there's home versus away. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, no. it's not the same conundrum. I mean, look, I, I love the goals. They are probably low percentage chances that are taken because of the quality of the strikers. And I, I, I yeah. again, I just think the the tension here is that goals win games. I don't know if you've heard that before. And they change games, too. That's another thing I've heard. But again, in a low-scoring sport, having players who can score goals from nothing is one of those things you just kind of want to have in there. And you look at the teams that dominate in this league and, and in Europe, and they have players who will destroy you if you give them a sliver of space. Um, the, the goal that Aubameyang scores is just sensational and effortless and, and smooth. A little Thierry Henry in there. I mean... Um, Clive, I know one thing that you probably want to talk about is partnerships, and how important is oh, it yeah. that that we have this Obama-Yang-Lacazette partnership that seems to be one they enjoy so much? And before I let you answer, I'll go ahead and just state my own point. Um, <laughs> Alexis and Ozil, not necessarily a friendship, but on the pitch, looked for each other, had a real chemistry together, and really enjoyed when one delivered a, a goal for the other or when one scored from the other's pass. This, this reminds me of that just a little bit. The enthusiasm they show for each other in what could ostensibly be a competition clearly seems to be a friendship. How important is that for you? Massive. It's a massive thing. And I, I really don't, I, I don't want to underplay this. I think it's, it could be really important to where we're going as a club. I think I look at these two players and they, it's obvious they get on with each other. It's obvious they want to play closer together. It's obvious they've got no egos between them. They just want to do good things for our club. And, and when you see that on the pitch, you don't see that very often, to be honest. You don't see that. You don't see, basically, that level of chemistry on a, on a football pitch. And I, I tweeted that something last night. I think it came up on the Guardian podcast as well. They remind me of Andy Cole and Dwight York. And they were two very good footballers, but together they won the Champions League. They were sensational. They could go anywhere together and cause problems to any defence. And they basically sparked off each other. And when I see these two play, I feel something similar. And I, I think regardless of philosophies and systems and formations, there's, there's lots of ways you can get those two on the pitch without having one on the left flank standing there waiting for the ball. Just played two up front. Barcelona were doing it. Other teams were doing it in the league. Man City did the weekend against a lower team, granted, but they're doing it. Two strikers cause problems. You can fix four, five defenders easily. But these two, you know, we've got issues in our midfield. Where we've got an old left back. We've got probably not our, you know, we our captain is not fit. Our central defenders are doing fine. We're bedding in new young midfields into our team. But we've got two men up front worth £110 million. And we've decided in some games to put one of them on the bench. I don't care what philosophy you have. You've got to fix that. You've got to change that. You've got to, you've got to make sure you use your insurance policy. Because while you're learning about other areas, you can put these two on the pitch and you can, you can get goals. And goals change everything. They change the story of games. They change the story of careers. And I think we just got to heavily invest in this. Because for me, this is our strength. And we need to not be afraid to put our strong players on the pitch. And if you've got to shuffle it around slightly, then we do so to make sure that they play together. Yeah, and, and Scott in his section expressed 
a little bit of concern about where the, the average touch position was for Aubameyang, and I understand that. It was more out in the left half space and a little deeper from goal, and I, I don't love that. And I'll admit that I am more an Aubameyang guy than a Lacazette guy, though I like both of them. Um, what I will say is, if you watch this game carefully, and obviously I watch it carefully enough that I don't have to watch it a second time, unlike some people. Um, if you watch it carefully, you see there are a lot of nearly moments where Aubameyang arrives in the box and is just a whisker away from getting on the end of something. Um, his movement is so intelligent, and I think Lacazette actually had a shot that rebounds off the post, and Aubameyang yep. is just a, a, a whisker away from getting on the end of that. There, there are moments, and you see it, and I, I do think that what's funny about football is that you can be so close to clicking and destroying teams and look so far from it because of the game state or because of you know calamities defensively, and so... I actually think from an attacking standpoint, things might be closer to clicking than we think. Defensively, I just, I'm just i just not sure that that balance is there. And so, you know, it's frustrating. I, I mean, Paul, just in terms of the result, I mean, you have sort of said that the results don't matter, that this is a process. But, you know, I, I kind of want to interrogate that a little bit in terms of what is the project here? You know, are, are we purely... A chemistry experiment? I mean, is this purely, are we in a lab this season and it, it really isn't about what happens? This is the control, so to speak. I mean, to what to what extent was this a crucial result? And to what extent should we still be, I mean, I know it seems crazy to say this in, in the beginning of September, but to what extent should we still be having goals and expectations in terms of the results and the outcome of this season? Or are you prepared to write it off entirely to process? So, I mean, results matter because they feed into confidence. So even if you're all about the chemistry experiment, one of the biggest aspects of that chemistry experiment, one of the biggest chemicals you're pouring into the the uh, the flask, the test tube, is results. Uh, if we'd lost all four games, we'd be in fucking deep doo-doo and not just on the table, uh, the you, Premier you, League table. You doo-doo on your table? <laughs> um um no um so uh it's a it's a there's a tension between worrying too much about the results and who's doing the worrying it would be best if the supporters back off it for now uh worrying about uh how we're fixed for the top four etc because ultimately if we don't get an identity a style of playing a a series of combinations that work for us uh, why go through this pain barrier? You're on to the next manager. So something has to click. And if we're overly concerned about results, if we're overly attached to where we are in the league table at the end of September and October and rubbing our hands, that's problematic beyond the points itself. That's all. That's kind of my point on it. As as supporters, and Clive kind of alluded to it, we kind of got to... It's not that we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't care. We just got to dial it way back in terms of getting overly hung up on who plays, what our format is, and what the results in the first two or three or four or ten games are. There's 38 games in the season. It's much more important that Emery works out what the fuck's going on in the first ten games than he gets a couple more points either way. That's kind of where I'm at on it. Clive? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know what, mate, we're all desperate to be Emory experts. And there's so many people trying to say, this is how we play. This is what we do. I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm not buying it, mate. I'm not buying it. 
I'll tell you what I see. I see a little bit more playing from the back, which is obviously something you can't miss. And I look at our running and sprinting statistics. I look at our pre-season bids and I see a fitter team. I see players working harder. I see players caring more off the ball. So I see players reacting to a manager demanding more. We're still in discovery phase for this team. I think we haven't got a consistent selection in the upper part of the pitch. We haven't got a consistent shape in the upper part of the pitch. We morph during games. and uh, But you know what? I quite like seeing my team work harder. I like that. I like the running stats. I like the sprinting stats. In some ways, that's not always good because that goes back to what I made my position earlier. The fact that we're having to run so much because our distances are not right. We're not compact enough. I want to see us more compact. I'm a natural pragmatist. I want to see that. I want to see our best partnerships on the pitch because they've earned the right. We lost Mkhitaryan on the weekend. Don't see any reason why we should lose him. He was fantastic against against West Ham. He should have played. We had a partnership there. It was broken. Your stats there were fantastic, by the way. And then we've got two strikers up front. Got to play. Got to get them close together. The rest of you lot, because your partnerships are not flourishing, you need to wait your turn. I need to hope I can find a balance for you. But in the meantime, I'm going to have my full backside, so I'm going to have two defensive midfielders, and I'm going to make sure that my other two midfielders are going to work hard and create partnerships. And so I'm looking at him. I'm not sure what happened there. I haven't read anything neither. What happened to him? Because Did he have pretend- a sniffle? I saw something say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. He had the sniffles, and my, and my, we're not going to read any conspiracies into that because you can wind up looking <laughs> really bad when you do that. But actually, just super quick, you guys, if Awobi was fit, do you think there's an outside chance that maybe Lacazette doesn't start and 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 he goes with Awobi on that left that left flank and Aubameyang up front? I mean, I I'm kind of wondering how much of this was choice and how much of this was circumstance. Um. Well, he chose to drop Mkhitaryan. Uh, I think Mkhitaryan would have played before Iwobi. Okay. So, so I think he wanted to play that's this lineup. That, no, that's a fair point. Yeah, I get your point. I think I just think the strikers just shown so much against West Ham towards the end. I think he was forced to play Lacazette because he came on and stormed it. He's come on to this game; has gone mad the match. They both scored. That they seem to be owning the team. If you see what I mean. If you watch the celebration, they seem to own the the new culture. They seem to be the ones that are behind the new joy within the dressing room and everyone's following them. It won't be long. It won't be long. If we allow these two to flourish, they will own this team. They will own it because I don't see anyone with the personality of these two on the football pitch to stop them owning this team. We just need to play them. I'm, I'm adamant about this. I mean, it's obvious you can see that they... One likes the slight left half and one likes the slight right half. One structural, one's a free spirit, one can cover ground. They can both score in various ways. Just tell me, and the best way to judge it, guys, is if you ask the opposition teams, what would they prefer? Would they prefer one of them or two of them to play against? They would take one of them to play against all day long. And that tells you exactly what we should do. We just need to do it. Yeah, well said. Um, I, I want to say goodbye because we're pushing an hour and a half with the Scott section included, but I, I want to stop uh, saying goodbye so that we can say hello to one new section of the podcast, one we've never done before. Uh, I call this section Praising Our Center Backs. Um, Mustafi gets a goal in this game. I thought overall Mustafi and Socrates actually acquitted themselves reasonably well. I think Nacho is is guilty for both goals, maybe not in totality, but certainly uh, for the end product. 
Bellerin didn't have a lot of help from Mesut Ozil, and, and so, you know, maybe was exposed a little bit. I, I don't know where I fall on this, Paul. I mean, can you give credit to the two center backs of a top six team when you concede two goals against a team that couldn't score against anybody pre- previously? Um, I think I say yes. I mean, look, if I'm going to yeah. dish it out for Mustafi and Socrates, and God knows I'm going to dish it out for Mustafi, you got to be willing to give credit where it's due. Is some credit due for them in this game? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I didn't think it was Socrates' best game. It wasn't terrible. Uh, I don't think they were particularly culpable. I could could certainly give you a mini highlight reel of things, uh, a couple of goofs that Socrates had. But I think overall the center backs were decent. I think Mustafi was very good. You know, if you're going to pick a 90 minutes – uh, and forget about his history and and your concerns and your nerves about him. He was proactive. He was front-footed. Uh, he won all his challenges. Uh, he was key on the distribution side of things, and he got the goal. Uh, and he could have had, he was in position to do a couple of other things. Two, uh, two other times, I think, both in the first half, the header that, that he bounced into the ground at the back post wasn't too bad. And he was almost on the end of a, another ball that was bouncing around in the, the box in the first half that just went over the bar by inches. So good on both ends. I, I think in particular I'd single out Mustafi. Um, and he deserves it because we pound him plenty three out of four games. So this was a good one. Uh, I do have a lot of hope. Uh, a lot of hope. I do have hope that they will. they're both players who can play within the system and respond to the system. And they won't be... Uh, our laggard. They won't be devil take take the hindmost in terms of our biggest problem this season. I think if we can crack the midfield, um, the the centre backs will be good enough to get us where we need to be this season. Uh, but it's all about the midfield for me. Yeah, as you know, I I feel a little uh, more bearish on Mustafi than that. But I will give him credit for having sure. what I thought was a good game. I mean, Clive, the the final word to you. Uh, I know how you feel about Lacazette and Aubameyang. We'll see what happens yeah. there. But do we really, surely, truly, honestly, madly, deeply have to say it is time for Lucas Torreira after the international break to start games? I mean, there there is no possible explanation left for not doing that. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I can't think of any reason why he wouldn't do this. And, and Paul's give a great description of Mustafi and Socrates there. But can you imagine somebody in front of them that can move and is absolutely determined to protect them? But also another thing, you know, don't underestimate the fact that a goalkeeper can make centre-backs nervous. Goalkeepers can be quite draining uh, when they are uncertain. And once you have a confident goalkeeper, your centre-back confidence becomes better. They feel more confident around him. They know he's there for them, particularly with the game being far more based from the feet from a goalkeeper. And if you've got somebody in front of you, you're thinking, you know what, not everything coming my way is going to get through. And I think we've seen, I've been surprised at Socrates and Mustafi, I've got to say. I didn't expect this. Mustafi looks super sharp. I thought he was gone in the summer. I really did. And Socrates has impressed me with his speed and his dominance and his quiet authority. He's quicker than I thought. And, I'll give him that. Yeah, he's quick like when Socrates. he needs to be. Uh, I like what he brings. He, and and he just put Terrera in front. And I just see somebody that just knows his job, that goes out there and says, okay, this is my area. 
and you're not coming in here. And I like that. You know, you've heard me say this before. I love players that want to dominate their space first and then play from there rather than vacate their space. So, um, yeah, the, the improvement is there. We, we can improve to a certain level. I'd love to see, a you know, I do feel Mustafi and Socrates are quite similar. Um, I do feel we were we were struggling in the air. That's another reason why Shaka should play because we are very small back there. But we're starting to see the potential partnerships develop and we just need a manager to pick them and when we do, then we can judge them appropriately. I think you'll find we have a head coach, but yeah, I agree with you. Um, so, <laughs> Paul's on Twitter, Paul's in my pants. Thanks, Paul's. Clive's on Twitter, Clive P-A-F-C. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Okay, it's the interlow. That sucks, but we are going to swamp you with content. We'll do live shows. We'll do free shows. We'll do Patreon shows. We'll come to your house. Clive will fix your internet. Paul will teach you decorum. I'll listen to you and never interrupt. We'll do all the things we're known for. It's all going to happen this interlow, so stay with us because we're really excited to uh, put more things inside your ears this next two weeks. So look forward to that. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about Tim in the comments. He is currently traveling to... I don't know, wherever one of our Europa League games is going to be in three weeks or whatever. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. To those of you who signed up for the Patreon, thank you. To those of you who haven't, thank you anyway for listening. Uh, as always, we we do appreciate it. So we'll be back with more great content throughout this interlow. So stay tuned. We'll be back with more uh, soon. Soon. It's coming. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.